This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. I've got a question. It's a pretty easy one. What are the things that a human needs to survive? If you narrow it down to three, what do you have? You have food, you have water, you have shelter. We're pretty simplistic creatures. We like to think we're complex. We're not that complex. We like to think we are because we can make decisions and we can invent stuff and we can go places. We're kind of a big deal. Kind of rule this whole planet. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, that's uh, That would have changed had the dinosaurs still been around. But when we kind of narrow it right down, food, water, shelter, that's it. And you can actually go narrower than that. If you had to take what you actually needed as a human out of those three things, what do you actually need? One thing, water. That's it. Clean water. And you can at least go for a little while until you figure out a way to get the other two things or you figure out a way to get help. But it all comes down to clean water, safe water. And if we look at the inventions that humans have come up with, some of them are pretty spectacular. So maybe I maybe I should ease off these humans. Maybe I should ease off what they've been doing because we do have some pretty great straws in a lot of third world countries that can help to purify water before it is consumed. We have other methods that have been invented, but that's third world countries, right? I mean, sometimes their water is not potable. It's it's not coming from a great source, or the fact is nobody's doing what needs to be done to keep it clean. So if you've got people who are polluting the water... And then that same water runs down the stream and somebody else is trying to make use of that water for drinking. You know, that becomes an issue. But that's that's a third world country, right? Third world country. I only wish that we could narrow things down to just one place. But in fact, in our very own backyards, we have been dealing with situations that aren't much different than what third world countries are dealing with when it comes to trying to find clean water. Seriously. If we look around, we don't have to look very far. In fact, if we could move some of the buildings in London, we've got fairly flat terrain. We could probably see into the township of Southwold from downtown London. Or if you got high enough, if you climbed to the top of one London place and you look around, have you ever been to Chicago where you go up that building and you can see four states at the same time? You get to walk out on the glass and you look down and it's about 134 stories. There's always too many people on that glass. I always worry, but it's it's been holding. But if we could look, we could see Southwold Township. But there's no way that there are water issues in Southwold Township. No, that's impossible. No, it isn't. And in fact, there are issues in drinking water that flows into homes in Southwold Township. Joining us right now is someone who can tell a story just about that. Please welcome to London Live, Jennifer George. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking some time out for us. I thank you. We like to think that issues 
like clean water are yeah, they're not something that that would happen in our own backyard. You have proof. What has been wrong with your water? Well, I live in a house that um, my father has been in since he was 14 years of age. Um, my grandfather died of uh, intestinal problems. Okay. Yeah. Um, blockages, stuff like that. A lot of this stuff goes back to E. coli. Um, I noticed for a while when I returned back from university, I went to Trent University a long time ago, or quite a while ago, but as a child growing up, we had water at our fingertips. We were able to go down and play in the creek, that Turkey Creek that used to run by my home. We were able to go down to the Thames River and jump off and play in areas that where the water was shallow enough to swim. Um, we were able to pick medicines and go do this and play at different places. And there was even a well down the road, straight down the road, that we used to be able to go down there and that put your pop bottle in there and dip it and you could have a nice cold taste of fresh water. Nowadays, <clears throat> I wake up on some mornings and I say it all leads back to that big dump that I sit just a couple of streams from. And the other one is the City of London. Now, I'm aware that the City of London does dump raw sewage into the rivers. And they keep telling me these aquifers are safe, that nothing will get into it. And in my heart, women are the protectors of water. And I, in my community, in indigenous communities, women are the ones that speak up about the water. But so many years, it's been men that have sat in those positions of council, elected councils. And my grandfather even sat in those positions. But he never took this lightly. He always said, life is changing, because he's seen it change from him growing up. As a residential school survivor, he brought his teaching to us. So we understand that. As my father, he was a Korean vet. He brought those teachings to us. Now the water here, it's not right. My father moved to London. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking with Jennifer George right now. And Jennifer, are you, are you a part of Oneida? Yes, I am. I'm a member of the Oneida Nation of the Thames. I love the pride in your voice. And I speak from the heart. Well, we're talking with Jennifer about clean water. As Jennifer outlines, you could go when she was young, take a bottle, dip it into the stream. You've got clean water. You didn't even have to run home to get a drink. It was provided for you right there. What would your water be like right now? Do you have some of those blue jugs that we hear about? You're darn right I do. <laughs> so tell us about the blue jugs. What are they for and why are they there? Um, because I have health concerns, to tell you the truth. In the last couple of years, I have uh, inner and outer broken my ankle, and then I turned around and just got on the mend to get a job and then slipped out my door and fractured my femur on the same leg. So I've been dealing with diabetes and trying to get better. Water's been the main issue. You feel water's been the main issue to you rehabilitating the injuries that you've suffered? Yes, because my body needs, like, like your brain, it needs so many percentage of water. 
I think it's 87. Well, the human body needs it every day or the human body doesn't, yeah, you're right, doesn't tend to do very well. So the blue jugs, are they your drinking water? They're my drinking water. They're my cooking water. And where do they come from? They rinse. It comes from Simply Pure Water in St. Thomas. So in other words, it's not coming out of your tap? No. You have water coming out of your tap? Yes. Why don't you use that to drink? Because I don't want to get a bellyache. And does that happen to people who drink from the tap? Well, let's just say uh, right now I'm also fighting um, to get my liver under control. And I ended up in the hospital comatose. Now, how long ago was that? uh, I returned home a week ago. Okay, so this, this is recent. Yeah. So with these health concerns, yeah, you want to make sure that you're doing what you can to get healthy. What have you been told by anyone now that now that you say as as you've got people like yourself who are raising the concern about the fact that the tap water provides a bellyache or you don't trust the tap water so you're not drinking or cooking from that? What have you been told by anyone after raising these concerns? They tell me, oh, well, we're going to bring you bottled water, like, you know, the 24 things like that. I said, but still, I said, that's not impacting climate. Like, you know, little wee plastic bottle. I said, I send those with my grandchildren when they go to school. If my grandchildren want to drink a water, you drink out of that bottle or out of that big jug. Hmm. You make your juice out of that bottle or your big jug. Now, have you had your water tested? You're, you're right, I does. I was part of the water testing. Okay, and what came back? What came back is there's two different things. Under the First Nations, it qualified. Under provincial standards, it failed. So there, there are two, there are basically two checks on the water. One is for provincial standards and the other is for what? First Nation standard. There's a different standard? Yep, there is. And under First Nation standards, they said it's okay? Yeah. But provincial standard, it fails? Yeah. That blows my mind that there are two standards like that. But you know what? The, the data collection is also not right. Because down here, they keep track of how many boil water advisories go out into the community. Like, you know, it's been so often, so many people just throw it over their shoulder. And in the long run, they they continue to get sick. It's like deaf ears. So what do we need to do here? As, as we kind of pick this down to the issue of your water fails the provincial standard, you don't trust it enough to drink from it, you're drinking and cooking from blue jugs, you're telling your grandkids you got to do this, you're trying to get healthy again, and it does take water in order to do that. So what do we do about this? I found a way to do it, and my sister did way long time ago, but she did not get backing to do it when she sat on council. And I've been talking with some of the members in on the Southwold Township Council, and they said that they are upgrading their system to include up to Dutton for their water systems, and we can tap into that. I said, what do you pay per month? He said, this is, he gave me the what they charge per month. I said, well, in my community, we only pay this part per month. I said, but we're still entitled to pay that water. 
regardless if it's potable or not. And for me, um, and a lot of elderly, you can't soak your feet in or take a long, long, luxurious bath in your bathtub or even at long-term care because you have to be careful of the sodium levels. Hmm. Well, Jennifer, I mean, this is something, it's great that you are are raising the voice about this. Like you say, for a long time, people on council may have dealt with other issues before this. Now the the real move is on to get something done here. You've looked at at connecting to the water supply that would come from the Dutton area, you said. Is is that something that that you're still checking on, or is that something that could happen? That's something I'm going to stay on. I I sat on this environmental committee in my community. I was chosen, actually, to sit on it, and I have gone through four administrations now, four turnovers, and I'm not giving up. Well, Jennifer, please keep tabs with us, all right? Thank you so much for letting us know more about this and for raising your voice because, like we say, you think, wow, Southwold Township, yeah, yeah, I drove through there just the other day. And we had yeah. you don't you don't necessarily think yeah that's that's where they're not even taking baths because they're worried about sodium levels that's where they're not using the water out of their taps that's where there's been concern for a long long time and nothing has been done to fix it Jennifer thank you so much anything else that you'd like to add before you go yes I would that this comes from everybody in our community clan mothers and our faith keepers and all the women out there. Jennifer, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That's Jennifer George from the Oneida Nation. And the the thing I think a lot of us, and you may have known this before, but I think the thing that really stands out to that is the provincial standard versus the First Nations standard. Why would there ever be two different things? A water standard is a water standard, Right. And I guess different countries will have it, but we're in the same country. We're, what, a half hour apart from downtown London? And they do point to what happens with the dumps that have appeared in those areas. If you go to globalnews.ca, you have that cited in a number of different things. One, an investigation that was actually done by Concordia University. And it kind of outlined 18 years of water quality testing across the Oneida First Nation. And it would show E. coli, as Jennifer mentioned, and that that was found in the water coming from residential taps. It pointed to the dumps and the dumping of millions of liters of raw sewage into the Thames River and that that was serving as the Oneida First Nation's water source. And yet... We're talking 18 years of things, and none of the funding has helped to change any of this. So now Jennifer, among others, is trying to speak up and say, what do we do about this? This this is not even exclusive to the Oneida First Nations. This is something that happens. There's another First Nations reserve where they were having difficulty with their drinking water. So somebody came and installed a pipe. And they pulled fresh water from a lake, or so they thought. And it turns out that it was within 100 meters of another pipe that was pushing out sewage from some company. And someone had failed to look at that. And it's not like somebody went, whoa, we made a big mistake here and went and fixed it. This was kind of 
left. And that particular First Nations Reserve had gone on something like 18 months without having potable water. When you don't even want to take a bath. I mean, these are things that we all like to take for granted, but why is nothing being done? Why does why do we have a First Nations checklist for water and a provincial checklist for water? And I know it's another situation where, yeah, well, we could put funding in so many places and we could put money here and we could put money there. But this comes down to drinking water. This comes down to what we were talking about at the very beginning. What's a human being need? Food? Shelter? Water. Trim that down. Take away two of those things. Okay, I'll take away water and food. Human just needs shelter. No, unfortunately, that's that's not true. Okay, how about if I take away water and shelter and leave food? Uh, no, no, try again. Water. That's what you need. And yet, this is something that we're seeing as being a major issue once again. And now, as Jennifer pointed out, for years... You've had no real pushback on this. And she says now because in their First Nations Reserve, you have women whose job it is to look after the water. And that goes back generations. And so now they are doing something about this. They are raising their voices. Thank you to Jennifer for doing it. Now it's a matter of having that voice heard and having action taken about it. That's the next step. And that's a long bridge. Between one and the other. That's a long bridge to cross. Okay, let's talk about something that goes a little off the wall, but I need some help in understanding, and maybe you can help me do this. Delivery services and the takeout nature that now exists in our world. You can search my phone. Here, take it. Take my phone. Take a look through absolutely everything. You will not find an app for anything that is a delivery service. I don't I don't have one. I've never used one. I loathe eating, which is unfortunate because my wife is a tremendous cook. But I I don't like to eat. Eating to me is a waste of time. I'd like to be doing so many other things while I'm sitting there eating and swallowing food. Can I have a pill? Can you give me something that it takes five seconds, you can swallow this pill, and you'll get everything you want, and off you go? I would love that. People either eat to live or live to eat, right? I don't live to eat. Don't know why. Can't explain it. That's just the thing. So I'm not somebody who's overly concerned about food when it's time to eat it. If I don't have my beautiful wife who loves to make meals, I might cook once out of 365 days. That's how lucky I am. But she's very good at it and enjoys doing it. So if she's not home, it's up to me to, and when I say cook a meal, I may make a meal for the entire family. If I'm cooking for myself, it's noodles and sauce, cheese on a plate, give me a pickle and some crackers, done. Whatever is around, leftovers, So when it comes to ordering from a delivery service or ordering from a takeout service that now becomes connected with all kinds of restaurants, I'm clueless. But here's what I don't understand. You have these delivery apps. You have these takeout services available to you. But they cost money, right? And that means that you could either go through a drive through which was put into what? You know, think about when drive throughs came in. How did people receive those? This is nuts. 
You're not going to get out of your car? And you're just going to get food? You, just, you can't be bothered to get out of your car? You're just going to pull up to a window? And somebody's going to give you your food? And then you either eat it in your lap or you, you drive home? drive throughs they, they had to be the end of things. But wait. But wait. Now we've got delivery services, which do well enough that they appear in all kinds of cities, in all kinds of places, and they seem to be doing a good business. Talk to any restaurant owner. You know what one of their biggest issues is? Do I bring on another employee to handle the takeout orders during the very busy times during the day? That's what a lot of restaurant owners are dealing with right now. Do I do that? Do I bring on another whole employee? And what do I do with my kitchen when I've got to have the kitchen churning out food for the people who come into the restaurant and then the kitchen also having to churn out food to keep up with deliveries? There are restaurants sometimes that have to put a pause on their ability to deliver food because people have instead of saying, yeah, we could, yeah, let's hit a drive through it's, I don't have to leave the comfort of my couch. I can, with an app... Say, oh, I'd like one of those, and one of those, ooh, and some of those, boop. And then you let somebody go and get it, and you can watch it come to your house, and then ding-dong, there it is. And I know there's a tip involved, and I know that there's a fee involved. How does this become something that you do on a regular basis, if that is, in fact, what you do? And to keep these things alive... That's exactly what has to happen. Can somebody help me to understand delivery services and takeout apps? Because I don't get it. How much is it costing you? How do you justify that being worth it? I mean, do we have that much disposable income? We'll talk with Mike Arsenault about the sport of cricket. Mike, let's go back to your baseball career with the majors. Even Let's go back even earlier than that. When did you start playing baseball? I started baseball uh, at seven years old, I think. Actually, you know what? I think it was six was T-ball, and then I started playing hardball at seven. <laughs> and now they have things like blast ball if you're really small. But we won't get into that. Even though blast ball might be a little bit more like cricket than anything else you might have played at a young age, were you a natural just right away? Were you one of those guys that, oh, here comes Mike, we got a home run? Uh, no, uh, my my baseball career was uh, a slow moving, uh, slow moving experience. It was kind of a, pretty much my baseball career only continued until teenagers because I was left a lefty, so they kept throwing me out on the mound. And then finally, once I able to uh, was able to learn how to pitch properly, that's when my kind of career took off a little bit. Beautiful. Okay. Well, now as you take a look around at things that are helping us to be a little bit more fit in the culture of fitness, you have reached. Cricket. Had you ever tried cricket before, even with all of your baseball background? Uh, not once, and I actually had no idea how the sport was actually played until I showed up to the Ontario Cricket Academy to to film this episode. But there are, I mean, obviously very significant parallels between the game of baseball and the game of cricket. But one thing that I, I found out is actually the anaerobic and aerobic demands in, ter- in terms of a cardiovascular fitness are greater in cricket than they are in baseball. Well, okay, you've got to, just a second. Now, I know baseball gets accused of being a fairly stationary sport, but still, there is action, there is movement. Cricket seems to be the bowler, the batter, and then, kind of like baseball, everybody else still standing around. So, how is it 
better in terms of cardiovascular than baseball. So the difference is, and, and there's different kind of permutations of cricket, like cricket from kind of 300, 400 years ago when it just started, like one match would take kind of like five days long. But what they've done with cricket, especially over the last 20 years, is they have a two to three hour kind of supersized version that goes a lot quicker. And where the demands are a little bit greater, especially if you're a good batter, whereas if you're a great batter in baseball, you hit a double, you run a second, you score, that's it, or you hit a home run. In cricket, if you're adept at batting, you could be up there for an hour, hour and a half running back and forth. There's no limit to how many times you can bat consecutively if you're not placed out. Whereas, of course, in baseball, you can only hit one every nine or ten times, depending on the uh, designated hitter. <laughs> so that does change things in a big way, because and I think a lot of us still have to learn more of the rules for cricket. You've got the wicket. Yeah, so the, the the wicket's basically kind of like the plate, right? So if if you are if you're uh, bowling and, and you throw to a batter and hit the wicket, that's one way how you can get someone out, or you can kind of catch the ball uh, without it hitting the ground. That's very uh, analogous to baseball. And there's a few other ways. We don't have enough time to kind of get into them, and I don't think I can speak intel- intelligently on just how those would work. But where it becomes um, those cardio demands is the amount of equipment you're wearing, Mike. That was the big thing. Was when we were kind of filming this episode, and I would hit and then run. You're running with pads on, with the bat, with the kind of big padded gloves and the helmet. It's a lot more difficult than running uh, straight to first base and where the difference comes in as well if I hit it deep in the field where the fielders will have to kind of chase that I'm going to be running back and forth with the equipment with my bat and again I could be doing that for 45 minutes potentially at one time if I'm a really great batter. We're talking with Global News reporter Mike Arsenault who played for the London Majors has an amazing baseball background and now has tried cricket as part of the culture of fitness so when you Put on the pads. I know if we go back in time, cricket pads, the leg pads, looked a lot like goalie pads in hockey. Have they streamlined those a little bit? That, that's a great point. They, they are exactly like those kind of street, street hockey pads that you would have when you were a kid. Very similar to that. Not nearly as, of, of course, as, as thick as goalie pads are today. But yes, kind of the old school 1980s goaltender pads. That's very similar to what they are. And they've, that's pretty much what they've been for the, the past, I think, 40 or 50 years, because that's a question I had. I mean, they can get kind of form-fitting, but it's just if you're not used to running with that much equipment on. Like, I play tennis during the spring and summer, Mike, four or five times a week. I'm, I'm in good cardio shape, but that was a completely different experience, having to lug all of that equipment, and especially that cricket bat's a lot heavier than a normal baseball bat as well. And that's the whole thing. You're hitting with a heavier bat. You're also hitting with a flat bat. For someone with a baseball background, what was that change like? I actually found it easier because, especially in baseball, it's obviously you have to keep um, you have to keep the ball within the field of play. But in cricket, the field is a circle, right? So I mean, you can literally just kind of almost like a bunt or just deflect the ball behind you, and if it's not caught by a fielder or if there's no one kind of manning that area, that counts as a hit, and you're kind of you're kind of scoring runs back and forth as you run between the the, the wicket. So I actually found it a little bit easier to hit because you don't need to kind of drive it into the gap. You can definitely do that, but you're able to, it's more of a hand-eye, I mean, both hand-eye coordination obviously is huge in both cricket and baseball, but you can kind of deflect it a little bit more rather than always trying to make that solid line drive contact. At any time, did you get a chance to play in the field in cricket? We had a couple fielding drills. This was at an indoor facility. Um, The big thing is you don't wear a glove. 
either, right? So, I mean, the ball's not as heavy or it's not as hard as a, as a baseball, but it still kind of hurts your hands a little bit as you're kind of uh, making plays. And, yeah, it's, a, it's difficult to catch without a glove on, um, especially when you kind of get some ground balls or line drives or fly balls. So that was a little bit different for me. The biggest issue I had and really the most confident I was going in, Mike, was with bowling. I was terrible at it because the rules of bowling and cricket, you get that run up, but the angle, you can't have more than a 15 degree angle with your arm, right? So it's kind of throwing, you don't kind of throw from the elbow. It's all from the shoulder. So I had a, I had a huge issue with that, but batting, I actually enjoyed it more than hitting in baseball. But of course, there's a reason why as a pitcher, my hitting prowess wasn't great to begin with. So 15 degrees, that means you're basically throwing with your arm almost right beside your head. Exactly. And it's, it's, you kind of have to have your entire body working in concert. So I, I found that because, I mean, obviously I spent 25 years honing my pitching mechanics from a baseball perspective, so I wasn't able to translate just in kind of that one-hour session in cricket. If I worked on a little bit more, it might be different, but where I kind of um, felt I excelled was, again, in the batting and also the fielding because fielding you can throw however you want, and I've always had a pretty good arm. So I think that would be an effective, um, effective strategy for me would be to kind of play in the field rather than bowling. But honestly, I think cricket is a sport I actually might try myself once we get to next spring and summer because there's a, a few leagues and actually a few co-workers at Global Toronto that play cricket and they've been trying to get me out for the last couple of years. So I think I might have to do this uh, going into 2020. Mike, great job on this. Thanks for talking cricket with us. Anytime, Mike, and uh, maybe London will get a team. I'll be back up there in, in the next couple of years. Who knows? Oh, wouldn't that be good? Look, you, you could take off in this whole cricket thing. We'll, we'll see. Well, maybe we'll have another conversation uh, next year. There's, I mean, there's, there's Canadian teams, there's World Cups, there's Olympics. Who knows? The sky could be the limit. Love it. And it could all come from the culture of fitness. Mike, have a great afternoon. Thanks. Mike Arsenault, Global News reporter who has put together the culture of sport. You can check that out at globalnews.ca. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 